This is Abby, and you are listening to Upsound. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Newsham, a planner in Kansas City, and today I am joined once again by Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hello, Chuck. Hi, Abby. It's such a delight to see you. It's a delight to see you too. I'm now in this um in the white room today, which is the official recording studio of multi-studio. Yeah, it's good. It suits you. I like your house with your guitar and your, your paintings and stuff. <laughs> and my um, dog and, and cat. And, and your dog and cat. But th- this works This works very well. So yeah, this isn't as eclectic, but it does have better... Um, the sound is better in here. So Oh, well. People listening won't... People listening will appreciate it. People watching, you know, we'll get, we'll get on with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, today we're talking about your favorite topic, which yes. is parking. <laughs> love. Um, yeah, I feel like love. I've wasted like half my life talking about parking, but. Uh huh. Well, mm-hmm. I know when you originally went to engineering school, did you think you would talk about parking as much as you no. are today? Uh uh-uh. uh. No. And it's funny because I look at like me back then and. You know, I, I mean, I grew up in this city, this small town. I went to build cities as an engineer. I really believed that we should have lots of parking. And the more parking we had, the better we were going to be. So, yeah, I'm a, you know, they always say that the converts are the most zealous. And I'm certainly high on the zealotry list when it comes to parking. Okay, so we're going to talk about an area of the country where we probably have a lot of parking zealots, and that is Dallas, Texas. So (laughs) uh, this article was published in the Dallas Express by Andrew Terrell entitled, Dallas Zoning Committee Advances Parking Reform. So local officials in Dallas, Texas are considering eliminating minimum parking requirements in the city. Their local zoning ordinance advisory committee just voted to advance the measure to city plan commission. And if approved by city plan commission, it would go on to their city council. Critics believe that this is a one size fits all approach to parking reform and that it's not an ideal solution to the city's parking dilemma. One express concern that was brought up in the article is that the change would basically shift the decision of of how much parking you provide on a site from the government to the free market. And if the market gets it wrong by underestimating or overestimating parking spaces necessary for customers and tenants, then the developer will pay the price. Proponents of the parking reform measure believe that the change will cut down on unused parking spaces and accelerate economic development. Minimum parking standards cause a lot of valuable real estate to sit idle and unproductive due to the sheer number of empty spaces that are scattered across the city of Dallas. So in general, these standards would reduce the city's tax base and contribute to higher housing costs as they are now and cause billions of dollars to basically be tied up in an unproductive asset. I think it's worthwhile because many of our listeners are not necessarily in the parking requirement world to talk a little bit about what parking standards even are. So 
Parking standards are standards that almost every city has. They're located in the city's zoning code. They're typically outlined in a table with a list of uses and minimum parking standards that are associated with them. Um, They come in all different types of ratios. You might have one parking space required per residential unit or one parking space required per 1,000 square feet of office space. Um, I've seen it based on number of employees, which is kind of funny because businesses come and go, but the parking lot you build is a lot more permanent. Um, parking so you is see, forever. <laughs> yeah, park, <laughs> should we make a shirt that says that? Uh-huh. I think <laughs> yeah. I think Minicozi did at one point, actually. Oh, no way. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, like you might see one parking space per five employees. And also, that one never makes sense to me because it's like, a business could just change the number of employees or make up the number of employees and get to the parking they want to build. So I don't know. That just, uh, that doesn't make any sense. So ratios are provided in all kinds of different ways. Typically no two cities have exactly the same standard, even in the same market or metropolitan area. So Chuck, maybe we can talk about where this approach came from. Mm -hmm. Why do cities have parking standards? So, I think maybe we should give this the best because you and I both think these are this is like pseudoscience. This is just crazy stuff. But let let's give it the best version of itself. Like let's steel man this thing. At at the end of World War II, as we were demobilizing troops and shutting down industries of war, there was this notion that we needed to, in a sense, stay out of another great depression, right? Not slide back into depression by turning our cities into machines of growth. And we did that by building infrastructure, by building suburbs, by subsidizing housing. We created all kinds of programs and initiatives. We we, we took a lot of stuff that was developed in the New Deal to keep the economy from going down. We, We repurposed a lot of that to make the economy go up. And we have been in a sense like juicing the economy around the growth of cities ever since. I mean, that is a, that is a national prosperity strategy is if we can go out and build, 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 build to quote our current president, we can make all kinds of great things happen. Part of the mindset of this was that we were going to do away with the messy city. Cities were messy. They were places where, you know, something would get built and then it would get torn down and then rebuilt and then it was something else. And it was always like this constant, like organic churn of stuff. And this was a period of time of like high science, right? Like we ultimately sent people to the moon. Like we can build rockets, we can build tanks, we can build ships, we we have assembly lines. Like we're we're very, very smart. It's almost like the peak of rationalism or the enlightenment period. Like we can, as humans, figure out how everything should be. We can have zoning. We can put big houses here and little houses here and design parks and have schools. And we can calculate the exact ratio of all these things we need. We can basically like scientifically concoct and and manufacture the ideal city. That is what suburbs were designed to be. And as part of this, one of the appendages to this was we could go out and study exactly the optimum amount of parking that we would need. We could go and like scientifically look at this and figure out what 
parking would be needed for what type of thing. So let's take some college interns and let's send them out to bowling alleys and let's have them look at 20 different bowling alleys across the region at different times of day and different amounts of usage and different, and let's have them plot up on a chart how many cars were there and how full that parking lot was. And then let's have them do that with doctor's offices and grocery stores and schools and everything. And we will just have a book of like tables that will show us exactly the optimum amount of parking that we need. Then we can take that optimum amount of parking, put it into a code and say, if you want to build the perfect city, here's how much parking you'll have. So if you want to build a perfect city and you're going to have a bowling alley, here's how much parking is the optimum amount of parking. If you're going to build a school, here's how much parking is the optimum for a school. And this basically became like the standard wisdom. If you were really smart, if you were really progressive, if you wanted to get out in front of growth and plan and do a really good thorough job of making sure your city was all going to be laid out perfect and right, here's your street widths, here's your setbacks, here's your uh, this and that, and then here is your parking standards. And so they just came along with this package of suburbia. And for cities like Dallas, if you look at the history of Dallas, Dallas, you know, after World War II started to, you know, lost population like most major cities. And the way that they addressed that was to say, we need to, as a city, become more optimum. We need to become more like the suburbs. We need to embrace this kind of advanced, sophisticated way of building. And so if you need this many parking spots for this over here, we need to have at least that many in our city to have the same thing. And so we start tearing down buildings, we start building parking ramps, we start converting what was an amazing city of Dallas into uh, something that now is dominated by surface parking and parking garages. Does that make sense? I, I'm. Yeah, it it makes a lot of sense, and it's interesting how you know you talk about that. Is back then that definitely was the progressive thing to do is to right. rationalize <laughs> parking, and now now that's kind of flipped a little bit. Although this should not be a political issue at all, it's, but it's become a big conversation, and that's kind of how these things go. And it's it's not to say that like environmentalists of the past thought parking was great. That that's not it. It was more of the idea that and and this our politics as a country used to be far more blended. There were definitely like liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. The idea was not like on a political spectrum, left and right, but more like people who were progressive in their thinking, like government can plan these things. We can get out in front of this. We can work with businesses and developers to create the optimum city. This was definitely the kind of peak of the top down, we can build the perfect place kind of mindset. It is antithetical to Jane Jacobs, who you could picture Jane Jacobs during this period of time, like, you know, yelling, like writing these, these, these books that were like, if you read her books, they come across as very anti-planner. And it's not that she would be anti, like you and me planner, right? But anti the idea that every uh, function of a city can be centrally planned, how much parking you need, what the, you know, what the setback should be, how many building units should be here. She saw this stuff as very much bottom up and organic and the imposition of these standards uh, for the ideal city to be, you know, antithetical to what building a great place would be. Right, exactly. 
So now we're kind of in this, maybe for the past 20, 30 years, have been slowly shifting into this different era of city building and planning where we are starting to focus more on urban walkable areas, areas that are legacy centers that don't have a lot of parking within them. And it seems that parking is just one of those things that come up in every community. There's always a parking problem, no matter where you go. <laughs> it's it, it's just one of those ongoing problems and having p- minimum parking standards and looking at reform for from a regulatory perspective becomes kind of a hot button issue. Th- the way that I see it is that parking is really, minimum parking standards are not really a good approach for dealing with the issue of parking. To me, parking is more of a management problem rather than a, a account problem or a regulatory problem. Because really, from a zoning perspective, zoning should be managing how parking is arranged on a site. Is it in front of the building or is it behind the building? How many access points to the parking lot do you have? How is it buffered from its neighbors? Do you have you know, adequate sidewalks and circulation and larger parking lots and landscaping within them if you're building a big sea of parking, which hopefully you're not, but a lot of businesses do, especially large corporate businesses. So when you're looking at more walkable urban legacy neighborhoods and centers, it shouldn't be about having minimum parking standards and regulating the parking management into existence. It it should really be more of a proactive approach where you're dealing with how how you manage parking on the street, how you manage existing parking, what kinds of shared parking strategies agreements can can be can be developed through partnerships between business owners and property owners. That's the way I see it anyway, is that this this issue of the count of parking and the number of spaces is really just, it's a reactionary way of getting to parking and it doesn't actually solve the problem. Well, I also feel like overlaid in this entire conversation is just that there's two different, there's two different worldviews about what a city is, right? One worldview looks at the automobile as in a sense, the appendage that everybody has or everybody should have. And so accommodating the automobile in all instances um, becomes, you know, the, the same as accommodating someone walking, you know, like we're, we get out of our car and we go in, there's got to be a front door to the building because how else would we get in? Uh, there has to be an elevator. How else would we get to the fifth floor? Um, there has to be a parking spot. How else would we actually get to the building? When I run into people like that, or when I read quotes from people like that in this article, they allude to the city attorney saying, you know, way hey, if we eliminate our parking minimums, uh, what if we decide we made a mistake? It's going to be really ha- hard to go back. And I'm like, no, that worldview is, I, I think, more closely aligned with this post-war, the kind of peak enlightenment view of like, we can manage everything. Because in a sense, you're saying, uh, here is the flow of traffic on the street. Here's the number of spaces. And there's only one dimension that you can respond in. And that is by adding more auto capacity or removing drivers and having them go drive somewhere else. Like we need another Walmart over here or another Costco over here, like repeated over and over. I think the more nuanced view, and I think the view that you see coming out in a lot of uh, reformists 
are, are people who are saying cities are complex, adaptive places. They can respond in multiple ways. If, if you have trouble getting someplace because of parking, you can either build more parking, like tear down things and build more parking, spend a lot of money building a parking garage, or you could just build more of the kind of destinations you're trying to get to somewhere else, or you could build more housing near the destination so you could walk, or you could have a parking lot a few blocks away and like improve the walkability of that neighborhood. So walking isn't that hard, or you could add transit so that you could maybe park here and then, and then take a bus. There's more than one dimension to responding to stress over parking. But if you if you never stop and ponder that, if you never embrace that, if that's not part of your experience, if you come at this from every trip is an auto trip, every trip that doesn't end in a convenient parking spot is is a is a bad trip, you take all kinds of options off the table that in a different worldview are really, you know, not just, options to consider, but they're actually like optimum options in many ways. If I live in a neighborhood and you tell me we can cut our parking in half, but we'll double the number of pizza places, coffee shops, cool places to hang out, um, people who can support those things and make them viable. Like if, if, if that was the trade-off, I'd be like, yeah, in a heartbeat. Like I, I'd be, that means like I don't have to drive at all. I can just walk to all these places. Like that, that would be a great advantage to my neighborhood. But if you don't live in a neighborhood like that and you don't ponder living in a neighborhood like that. Those things seem like scary and foreign and like, I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's worth also noting that there's more than one dimension to what is actually driving parking to be built. It's not just the city's zoning regulations that are requiring parking. Parking is also dictated by lenders and I would argue that that is a more nuanced and situational approach because essentially the developer and the lender would be working that out between each other based on the particularities of the site rather than, you know, having a, I guess, one size fits all approach by just input, putting it into a zoning code simply based on the use. Because if you have let's say a retail use and you're a Walmart, that's very different than being a retail use and you are a 2000 square foot outfit that's selling cupcakes or something like that. Um, those are very different contexts, very different uses. And honestly, like there is no science for determining whether or not one business would need to have parking and at what point you would you would start cutting that off or changing it. I, lots of cities try to build that into their codes. I would recommend just getting rid of regulatory minimums completely and actually adding maximums into a code and then letting businesses and lenders work out the minimum parking between each other. Well, it was very interesting. Minnesota is debating at the legislature a bill that would uh, prohibit cities from mandating parking. And I went down and spoke at the press conference announcing this bill and spoke in support of it. There was a woman there with, and it wasn't the Chamber of Commerce, but it was some Minneapolis-based business coalition kind of thing. She was, she was, she was there supporting businesses. And she got up and, and the thing that she said is, there's a UPS store that is one of my, you know, in my group of businesses. There's a UPS store and they told us that their clients 
are driving to the suburbs where there's ample parking to use the UPS store there instead of going to one in Minneapolis where there isn't enough parking you can't pass this bill nobody there like argued with her she got up and spoke and you know whatever and i was hoping someone would push back on that and they didn't because the reality is is getting rid of you said parking maximums in in Dallas they're trying to get rid of the parking minimums in Minnesota, they're trying to get rid of the parking minimums, the mandates that local governments have that if you're going to open a UPS store, here's how much parking you need to provide. If the UPS store in Minneapolis, which was not required to provide parking and decided not to provide parking, feels that they need more parking, there's nothing that prevents them from providing that. Like They can go out and do that today if they want to. And after the Minnesota law passes, they can do that. And any UPS store or any other business in Dallas that wants to provide parking is going to be allowed to do that if their business does. But what won't happen if they get rid of this is the local government won't come in and say, UPS store, we think you need this many stalls. You must provide this. If you look at this from the perspective of this, the woman who made this case, if you look at this from the perspective of the UPS store, if they need 10 stalls, what difference does it make to them if the government mandates those 10 stalls or if they come in and voluntarily decide to build them? If they need 10 stalls to make their business work, go put in 10 stalls. But if you can't pay, you know, if the land is so valuable, you can't acquire 10 stalls, if that's not the highest and best use, maybe you're in the wrong business in the wrong place. Like, I don't know how mandating parking solves that problem. And you know, certainly what it does is it stifles businesses like this from even getting started in the first place. I, I would agree with that. I mean, I won't go get into it, but I can think of a number of businesses and places that I've worked in where, you know, parking is so important to them and it's it's a huge problem but they're located in a place that has zero parking zero dedicated parking spaces for their business and so you know there's fights over over public parking and street parking and and arguments amongst businesses about basically who's entitled to public parking spaces and that's something that you see in a lot of legacy uh, downtown destinations amongst the business community. I, I think I would add one caveat to that statement because I'm just thinking about situations where, you know, a corporate UPS store that's located in a particular area, they might decide to buy the property next door. Maybe the real estate isn't very expensive right now and they can tear down the building to build parking spaces. And this is something that we've seen certainly in Kansas City, but I know in a lot of other places that are the result of cities requiring minimum parking. People have just bought the building next door and torn it down and made it a parking lot. Um, it would be a shame if if that were something that would happen. And I don't know exactly what the, besides having maximum requirements and capping the number of stalls that a business can, can build and maybe doing it based on context, I'm not sure what the right strategy would be to prevent something like that. Yeah. I do think, I mean, I, I can make the case that there are many places where parking maximums would be very helpful. Uh, because land is so undervalued and it is easy for kind of an apex predator with outside capital to come in, buy up land, uh, denude the tax base even more, 
uh, you know, essentially, well, I look at my own neighborhood here. We have a hospital uh, in my neighborhood and the hospital is a really bad neighbor. The hospital itself doesn't need to be a bad neighbor, but what they do is they devalue the property across the street by kind of being uh, an antisocial building that you don't want to be around, right? A big parking lot, uh, loud air conditioning units and all this stuff. That property goes down in value. They purchase that property then, and then they tear it down and make it a parking lot. And then the next tier of properties become less valuable. And you can actually map this up how they're kind of this slowly creeping cancer of parking lot going out in the neighborhood, devaluing everything that it touches. Um, one way to deal with that is to have a parking maximum or to, uh, you know, what, what we have done here in the last couple of years in Brainerd is to say, uh, you're not allowed to tear down residential units without replacing it with a residential unit. So you can't actually uh, buy up houses and, and expand your parking lots that way. But to me, you know, you look at something like what they're trying to do in Dallas, you look at something like what they're trying to do here at the Minnesota legislature. I think that you can argue on a case-by-case -case basis over parking maximums, I think parking minimums are indefensible. I mean, it, it is one of the very few things in the, the urban planning realm where I think there's a universal applicability that parking minimums should go away. There is no justification for requiring private property owners to provide public parking. There, there really is like no science behind it. There's no benefit for it. There's no public good. It is universally indefensible. And that's why, you know, I, I didn't hesitate to go down to the legislature and say that, like, we should get rid of these everywhere, period. Yeah. And as a public policy in, in a regulation, it's basically like shooting yourself in the foot because requiring parking is it is horrible for the tax base. I mean, if you're going to have a bunch of parking lots all over the place, that's essentially a, a non-productive piece of land. It's not producing very much tax revenue at all. I think many American cities, if not most, have like a significant proportion of even their downtown areas dedicated to parking lots. And those parking lots are often owned by people who are speculating on the land value. They're paying very little in taxes and they're probably, you know, you, they're probably making money when there's events going on in the area or charging for parking in some kind of way. So they're directly profiting while the tax base is suffering. So I think if, if your public policy position is that parking is this costly embedded aspect of development and that is totally unvaluable from a productivity standpoint, then we should be just deregulating parking citywide and eliminating minimums full stop. Yeah. Let me take issue with this attorney too. I would acknowledge being a little bit triggered by this quote from the attorney in the, in the article today, because I can't tell you how many times I've dealt with attorneys on parking minimums. In fact, I'll go back to here in my hometown. I was on the parking commission for a while. We looked at all the neighborhoods in the city and basically showed how every our street standard includes on-street parking. And at any one period of time, like 4% or something of the on-street parking is being used. Like nobody parks on the street, right? 
So we have like this vast amount of asphalt that we have created where we drain the stormwater off of it and all this stuff that nobody uses. And so one of the things that we were talking about is let's get rid of the requirement that people build have to build parking every time they build a house. So, you know, you've got an empty lot, you want to build a house on it. Nope, sorry, you have to add a garage, you have to put in parking spaces, all this stuff used to be mandated in our code. Our attorney showed up and the attorney said, you know, well, what if, what if you're wrong? What if we repeal this and then, you know, there's parking on the street and chaos and mayhem and like, uh, we can't go back on this because it's too hard to change the code. What if we're wrong? And first of all, I mean, that's exactly what the city attorney here in Dallas is arguing. I don't get the idea that we can change a code, but we can't change a code back. I mean, just like procedurally, that's a stupid argument. I mean, obviously you can change the code if it doesn't work out. You can't say like no backs <laughs> or whatever it is, like no backsies, right? Like, no, you can obviously change the code again. What I realized in Brainerd, and I suspect this is the same thing in Dallas, is that attorneys really like parking codes. And they really like parking codes for the reason that a lot of cities are reluctant to get rid of them. They are a control device. You know, because you've had land use law like I have, if you're going to impose a condition on a development, you have to have what legally is called a nexus between the problem they're creating and the condition you're imposing. But if you have a developer come in and they can't meet your arbitrary, crazy parking requirements that don't make any sense, you can actually use that as a lever to like negotiate down. Hey, we uh, hear you on parking. We're requiring 80 spots. You only want to provide 60. We could maybe work with you on that one, but we as a city have these concerns that are kind of outside of the code or outside of the ordinance. Could you help us? And it becomes this lever to, in a sense, uh, get what you want, I'll say unconstitutionally or through a negotiation process as opposed to a regulatory process. And attorneys like that. I mean, attorneys like having that kind of leverage because in the legal realm that they work in, it makes land use decisions easier to defend. If you have, if you have a rote standard, are you meeting that standard or not? If the answer is yes, you get a permit. If the answer is no, uh, then it becomes arbitrary of the city and the city has a lot of power to decide those things. And what parking mandates do is they shift the balance of power from property owners to the city in a way that city attorneys really like. What sticks with me about that entire statement and, and explanation is that there's that question of what if we change this and we get it wrong? It's like, well, what if we are wrong right now? What if we are wrong? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, imagine that. Maybe we we are wrong. <laughs> it, it is the, what We're are you sensitive there. to? Right. Like, okay, <laughs> what are you sensitive to, right? Oh my gosh, what if we get it wrong and people have to drive around and look for a parking spot or there's not enough places to park? What if we have it wrong now and the city of Dallas is actually broke and doesn't have enough tax base to support all the infrastructure that is built? What if we got it wrong now and we tore down literally centuries, generations of growth and development, we ripped down to provide parking? What, what if we're wrong and we've actually like built ourselves into uh, stagnation and decline? 
I feel like we're sensitive to the wrong things here when we say, what if we got it wrong? What if we get it wrong? Dallas has got it wrong for 70 years now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the context of Dallas too, I want to give a shout out to a Strong Towns member named Hexel Colorado, who's in Dallas. Um, I have a quote here. I don't know who that is, but that's one of the coolest names I've ever heard. Hexel Colorado? I'm in. (laughs) It's the coolest name ever. (laughs) Um, But this quote here says, the vast majority of Dallas sites have no idea the city used to be walkable. Dallas being born as a car city is the prevailing myth, even among many urbanist activists here. So that's that's actually, that was news to me. I didn't know, know that. I didn't know that Dallas was a place that used to be walkable. And yeah, this, I mean, it, it's not just parking standards that made it unwalkable, but regulating minimum parking standards into into your code and into your development pattern is going to cause major problems over time. And so, yeah, I would say we've gotten it wrong now. Many cities have gotten it wrong now. So any of these arguments or or questioning of what if we get it wrong, I think is not a very valid way of thinking about this. Is this the, is this the person who provided the video too of what like old Dallas used to look like? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. I got to say that video, I mean, I was not shocked by it in the sense that it was unexpected, but it was stunning to see Dallas. You're showing just a street on a normal day. And yes, there are cars on that street, but the dominant thing on that street were people out walking just everywhere. And you think about Dallas today as this place where, you know, at, at, at its best is often lots of vacant streets, lots of empty space, lots of dead space. And you you think, you know, yeah, Dallas is a, I mean, like Kansas City is an auto city, right? It was built around the automobile, but it wasn't. And at its peak, at its like best, it was a beautiful, gorgeous, not just a walkable space, but like a human space with great businesses and great stores and, you know, lots of glamour and lots of just all the things you associate with like the most upscale glamorous places. That's what Dallas was. That's what Kansas City was. That's what Minneapolis and Brainerd were. We imposed this suburban experiment. I mean, the way we talk about it here at Strong Downs, we imposed this suburban experiment on these urban places and did huge amounts of damage to them. It it is bizarre that the prevailing myth is that, well, Dallas is an auto city because its DNA is not auto city. Its DNA is very much the opposite. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, yeah, just say no to minimum parking standards. We this this should be a this should be a simple one. I I just it's simple. Yeah, it's simple. Yeah. We are it's wrong simple. now. Yeah, and if you're sensitive to the mistake that might happen, um, look at if if we decide in a certain categories we have made a mistake, we're going to have a very difficult time reinstating those. Why are you going to have a difficult time reinstating them? Why? If it's clearly a mistake, like, oh my gosh, we totally screwed up. Why would it be hard to reinstate them? I mean, Um, we made a mistake already and it's very hard to rebuild entire cities. (laughs) Yeah. Let's get at it. Yeah. We're already there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, Dallas will be pushing this on to planning commission. So I'm anticipating that there will be stories and lively debates as the planning commission is considering this. And theoretically, if it gets through a planning commission, it'll go to council and hopefully get passed. But we'll we'll have to just keep an eye on that. Um, So before we finish today, it's time for the down zone where we can share anything that we have been reading or watching, listening to, anything that's been taking up our time these days. Uh, Chuck, I'm going to put you on the spot and make you go first this time. Okay. All right. Um, I think I will bring up, because I, I haven't really started a new book since the last time I shared the books that I've been reading. I've been doing this program uh, called Exodus 90. It's my third year doing it through our church. And I think I've I've mentioned it in the past, but it's a pretty intense program. And it takes up a, a lot of, I mean, it takes up a lot of time. It is a, it is a dedication to spending a lot of time on things that uh, I, I enjoy spending time on, but during the regular year, I, I don't. Um, prayer, meditation, uh, exercise, going to sleep early <laughs> is a big one for me because I'm usually a night person who doesn't get a lot of sleep and you're asked to get uh, seven, eight hours of sleep a night. It occurred to me when this comes out, it will be Ash Wednesday. It will be the beginning of Lent uh, for Christians who who practice uh, Lent. It will be We will be in Lent by the time this thing comes out, or I think the day this comes out will be Ash Wednesday. Um, at that point, you're halfway through this program. And I spent the first maybe like three weeks halfway into it because I was not feeling well. I was kind of sick and, and like recovering. Uh, but the last two weeks I've been in all the way and I can start to feel now a little bit better and a little bit stronger and a little bit more focused. And when you and I sit down to record, I'm like not having to drag myself to the computer going like, okay, uh, get your head into it. It's like, uh, it's a very head clearing um, kind of thing. So I'm really grateful that I can do this with a bunch of guys from my church and I think be a, a better dad and a better husband doing it too. So it's been kind of fun. Third year. Yeah, I, I remember we've talked about this, I think, for the past yeah. couple of years. Um, I'm glad it's working for you and and making UpZoned better. That's great. Making UpZoned better. That's right. Well, <laughs> I, I, I feel like, um, you know, it's amazing how, because I haven't traveled this year. I, I go to Alaska in a couple of weeks and then I go to Alaska to San Antonio. So I've got a 10 day trip coming up, but I haven't, I mean, besides my board meeting at the beginning of the year, I haven't traveled at all. And it's amazing how productive you can be when you're not, <laughs> not getting on flights and traveling around. I've been writing, I've been podcasting, I've been doing all kinds of stuff. It's been really kind of yeah. fun. So yeah, yeah. You, you were on a roll. Well, actually, I'm about to do a little bit of traveling. I'm going to visit Santa Fe in Taos, New Mexico for the first time. Um, I'm visiting the Earthship community in, in Taos. And actually, in preparation for this trip, I have been reading a book called Blood and Thunder. Um, I'm not done with it yet, but I'm hoping that I'll get through it all by the time I get there during my flight. So this is basically a nonfiction book that was published by a historian named Hampton Sides. Um, And it follows this decades-long battle between the United States and the Navajo Indians and talks about the American conquest of the West and the history that's that's all behind that. It centers the whole story around uh, a trapper that's named Kit Carson, who 
was basically a legend at the time. And um, yeah, just just tells the the whole story in a lot of detail. So it's an incredible book. I'm really fascinated by the Southwest and I haven't had the opportunity to spend a ton of time there. So I'm kind of reading this as a way of putting myself in a mental space to really appreciate the place when I'm there. Well, I went to Santa Fe last year. That was my first time. Unfortunately, that was like the absolute low point of me being ill uh, <laughs> last year. So I spent most of my time in bed when I was there. But the little bit that I did get to see was fantastic. I really want to go back. The people there were wonderful. I wonder if with these uh, earth chips, is that what you're calling them? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is there an alien component to this? Because I feel like, I feel like, you know, parts of New Mexico aliens, it all kind of the earth ship, it all kind of blends together. You're going to have to be on the lookout for me. I will definitely be on the lookout. Um, I don't know if there is an alien component to earth ships oh, and why they're called that. I bet there is. Yeah. Some photos, some photos, Abby. I need some alien photos. I will find an alien and I will not only <laughs> photograph it, I will send it to you with a postcard. I feel like you and I are someday, 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 you know, if aliens are listening, they will abduct the two of us together and we can do an upzoned like from a alien spacecraft or something. That would be cool. Yeah, that would be really cool. In fact, it would be welcomed <laughs> at this point. <laughs> it would be, it would be sh earth shattering. We, it would be, we would break all kinds of podcast records then, wouldn't we? Yeah, I know. That would be, that would be pretty neat actually. So, uh -huh. but yeah, I, I'll let you know how that goes. I know we have a little bit of an alien theme on this show um, and we haven't talked about aliens in a while, but we while. used to have quite a alien theme going for us. I had, I had someone send me a picture just this week saying, Hey, for you and Abby, and it was like a alien something or other. No so, way. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, I'm totally serious. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, well, I love that. Yeah, I think people are going to start to think we're like very serious about this, but we have fun, don't we? We are serious about this. That's why well, I'm going to see the Earth ships. Yeah, kind of yeah. serious. Yeah, yeah. We're kind of serious, but we kind of don't take ourselves too serious. Yeah. Not about aliens. For sure. We're, Definitely. We're alien curious, right? Right, yeah. Abby? I think that's a... I'm open to the possibilities, <laughs> although um, not completely convinced, but open to the possibility. Absolutely. I am open to the unknown. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. All right. All Have right. fun. Well, thank you. I'm, I'll, I'll take lots of pictures and share them. All right. Thanks, Chuck, for joining me today for another episode of UpZoned. Thank you. And thank you to Multi-Studio for letting us do this at a different time in a different place and being so cool about uh, you being my UpZone compadre. They're, um, they're a pretty great place. Yeah, they are pretty great. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of UpZone. See you, Chuck. Take care.